Thank you, choir. I want you, I want you all to, to keep that in mind, actually, what they just sang, because, because one of the things that John's going to say to us this morning is that we're to dwell with him, we're to abide in Christ, but of course, the only way we do that is if he first dwells in us. That's a good prelude to what we're going to look at this morning. There are lots of things, okay, now I'm going to shift, right? That was just a comment on the, the choir. Uh, so I, I, want, I want to shift what you're thinking about here for just a minute. There, there are, I want you to think about your life and experience as a consumer. It's pretty basic to who we are as Americans, right? We spend a lot of our time and our identity as consumers. And, and the reality, of course, is that there are a lot of things that, that we buy as consumers uh, knowing that in a very short time we're going to throw them away. We're going to be done with them, right? Teflon pans, right? Never spend much money on a Teflon pan because no matter how much money you spend on it, in a couple of years, it's useless. Running shoes, right? Now, you need to spend a little bit of money on running shoes because your knees are important, but if you're running into them regularly, in about six months, you're going to be buying them again, right? So there's a limit, maybe, unless you're one of those Olympians, to how much you're going to spend on running shoes, just enough to keep your knees safe, but not so much that you feel like, you know, you got you to stay in them. Computers. Now, that's a harder one to swallow, but it really is true, isn't it? Increasingly, these days... Computers are a disposable consumer item, uh, not, not because they wear out, but because they become obsolete. And, and this, this is the reality in our life as consumers. Uh, things either wear out or they, they become obsolete so quickly that, that there is a, a limit to how much we're going to spend on them. I mean, we, we think about it kind of carefully. But in our disposable society, there are still some things that we don't think of as disposable. There are some things that we buy that we actually still think should last, maybe even should outlast us. A good set of tools, right? I have some of my grandfather's really good tools. Well-built furniture, right? I, I, uh, my, my house actually is filled uh, with furniture that was not... Uh, made in the last 25 years, but, but furniture from, actually, some of it from my great-grandfather's house, right, when they still knew how to build furniture. A finely crafted watch. Things like that and others, we could keep going. There, there are some things in our experience that we expect to last a lifetime and, and even then some. And, and, of course, when that's the case, the price reflects it, Right? We're willing to pay more, which is why before we plunk down a lot of money for something that's supposed to last a long time, we want to make sure that it's quality, right? That it really is going to last as long as the salesman tells us it's going to. This winter, we're considering authentic Christianity using John's first letter, writing to a group of churches probably. Uh, that he was closely associated with and, and written toward the end of the first century. John, of course, knew Jesus in the flesh. He walked with him, he talked with him, he spoke with Jesus. But he's writing to people who have only heard about Jesus. They didn't meet him personally. And, and so he, he understands that the stakes are actually quite high here in, in his 
in these people's lives and his discussion with them, the stakes are quite high. The very meaning of life, the meaning of truth, the meaning of love. And John is aware that there are a lot of alternatives on offer out there, both, both outside the church and even alternatives being offered inside the church. And so John writes, he wants them to be able to recognize lasting truth from passing error. He, he wants them to know what is true, a, a true truth that is really going to last rather than something that maybe seems true, but actually isn't going to bear out in the end. But, but he doesn't just want them to recognize lasting truth. He wants them to last. He, he wants them to last as Christians. Because the question really isn't just the philosophical question, what is lasting truth? It, it's a personal question. Who has life that will last even all the way into eternity. So I want you to turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's found on page 1900, 1900. 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to read, uh, unlike what the reader board says outside, I'm going to read from verse 15 all the way to verse 27, not just 17. Um, from verse 15 all the way down to Verse 27, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. All right, there's a ton of stuff going on in this passage. In fact, this is going to be the longest passage that we look at in this whole series of 1 John. And uh, there's no way I'm probably going to be able to talk about everything you'd like me to talk about, su you know, sufficiently out of these verses. But, but what I want you to see is that at its core here, John is presenting the, the third test, the third mark of a genuine Christian. You know, we've seen first that the test, the mark of obedience, that the genuine Christian obeys God. We've seen 
the, in this, the, the second mark, the second test of a genuine Christian, a genuine Christian loves his fellow Christians. Here we get to the third test. It's the test of belief, the test of doctrine. The genuine Christian confesses that Jesus is the Christ, God in the flesh. That's this third mark that, that John delivers here. And, and so John actually exhorts us in this passage, and, and this passage is a little different from some of the other ones we've looked at so far. There are a lot of imperatives. There are a lot of exhortations. He exhorts us to recognize and reject all the other alternatives to Jesus, because those alternatives are passing. They're not going to last. They're going to fail you. They're going to disappoint you. And then he turns and tells us how we can last, how we can remain in Christ whom we confess. So if I could sum up what's going on in this entire passage in one sentence, for those of you that like to get sort of a a one-sentence summary, here, here it is. And it's going to come in the form of an imperative, an exhortation, because that's the way John does this this whole passage. Remain in Christ. Here's, Here's the point of this passage. Remain in Christ through the Word and by the Spirit, because the alternatives don't last. They won't last. Remain in Christ through the Word and by the Spirit, because the alternatives won't last. Now, the way John works this idea out comes in, 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 we're going to look at it in three steps. First, verses 15 to 17. The world is passing away, so don't love it. The world is passing away, so don't love it. Second, in verses 18 to 20, false teachers don't stick around. They don't stay, so don't follow them. False teachers don't stay, so don't follow them. And then third, verses 21 to 27, Jesus is the Christ, so remain in him. Jesus is the Christ, so remain in him. You see what's going on in this passage. Some things are passing away. The world, false teachers, don't go there. Jesus is the Christ. He remains, so you remain in him. Let's see how that works itself out. First, the world is passing away, so don't love it. Look again at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. John really couldn't be more clear in these verses, right? Don't love the world. He couldn't be more clear, but, but what does he mean? You, you feel that tension I, I, that I felt all, all week as I was studying this passage? Yep, I know what you're saying, John, but what exactly do you mean? After all, doesn't God love the world? I mean, isn't that what Christianity is all about? Isn't the whole point of Christianity that God loves the world? So what's John doing coming and telling us, don't love it? Don't love the world. Isn't that why we uh, do evangelism? Isn't that why we send out missionaries? Love for the world. Well, yes, God loves the world, and we love the world. And so we, we give of ourselves sacrificially. 
But what we need to understand is that John uses the word world in different ways. And what he has in mind here is not so much people or things, and certainly not the planet. You know, this is not an anti-environmental passage. Now, what he has in mind is that system of fallen human values and human beliefs that stand opposed to God, that, that in fact are in rebellion against God. He really spells it out for us there in verse 16. Everything in the world. Now he's going to tell us what he means by the world. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, our cravings, our lusts, our boasts. That's what he's talking about here when he talks about the world. He's talking about our sinful desires that arise from within us, desires to use and abuse others for our own appetites, for my own selfish gain. He's talking about our desire for things, the, the, the things that our eyes can see without regard for their true value. That actually when we see them, we, we actually begin to attribute a value to them that they don't have. He's talking about our pride, our pride that would define ourselves by what we own, by what we've done in life, without any regard to the creator who made us. Friends, this is what it means to be fallen. It's a theological word that you hear sometimes, and this is kind of going to be a pretty theological sermon, because John's being quite theological here. Uh, to, to, To be fallen is not to be as bad as you could be. It is rather to be someone who is fundamentally committed to your own desires, committed to your own pleasures, committed to your own glory rather than God's. To be someone who has given yourself characteristically to your cravings, to your lusts, to your boasts. And John points out that this kind of love, a love for the world, it's not just foolish, it is a fatal attraction because it's not going to last. He says the world is passing away. Right there in, in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away. He, he's actually using the same language that he used back in, in chapter 2, verse 8, where he talks about the darkness is passing because the true light is already shining. God's, uh, Jesus Christ's appearance, you see, has not only revealed the light, but his death and his resurrection guarantee God's judgment of the world. It's not just that it's unfortunate that the world has, has set itself up in opposition to God and, and seems, to have a capture, seems to have captured the the affections of of so many people around us and maybe even some of us here in this room. It's not just unfortunate. That's that's the way Apple users think of PC users, right? You know, how unfortunate that they have chosen an inferior platform. But it's their choice. Okay, that's unfortunate. This isn't unfortunate. This is wicked. This is wrong. To love the world instead of God is not just to make an unfortunate choice. It is to rebel against the God who made you. 
and it deserves. It deserves precisely what Christ suffered on the cross. It deserves death, and it deserves rejection by God. This is why John can be so certain that the world is passing. Because if God did not spare his own son, who who took on our rebellion, who died in our place to save us, if he did not spare his own son, then he surely will not spare the world as it persists in its opposition to God. The world is passing away. Make no mistake. So John says, don't love it. Love God instead. Love God instead. He makes very clear there in in verse 15 that this is a binary choice. You can't have two loves when it comes to God and the world. And, 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 you know, I think this is hard for us sometimes because in our experience, there are very few things that work this way. We are not faced with lots of of binary choices, exclusive choices. You know, I can like chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream. It's not either or. I I, I can like steak and shrimp. It's not either or. I can can even like Chevy trucks and Ford trucks. You know, I can move back and forth. I can own them both at the same time. It's not either or. And that's the way most of life is. We have multiple loves, and it's fine. But not everywhere, right? Even in our lives, we're faced with some binary choices. So, so you know, when it came time to get married, right? I, I couldn't decide, I love Adrian, I'm marrying you, and I'm not. I'm also going to love this other person over here, maybe marry them too. That's, well, it's illegal, for now. Um, and of course, it doesn't work, does it? I mean, th- this is a binary choice. I'm either married to Adrian or I'm not married to Adrian. Thankfully, she said yes. So, so a few places in life, we're faced with these binary either or choices. Friends, this is the way it is with God. And, and scripture is very clear on this. You cannot have two loves. You either love God or you love the world. You can't love them both at the same time. Jesus said the same thing when he declared, you cannot serve both God and money. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll love the other and hate hate the one. It's it's binary. If you love the world, and and let's be clear here, what John is talking about is is not just a, 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 a single fall into love for the world. He's talking about a a characteristic lifestyle of love for the world. He's talking about an ongoing pattern of life, of love for the world. If you love the world, if you are committed to love your sinful desires, then John says you do not love the Father, no matter how much you tell yourself you do. Because as we've already seen, and as John reiterates here, to love the Father, verse 17, to love the Father is to do his will. It's to give yourself to his desires, not your desires. It's it's to recognize that you're defined by him, not by the stuff that you own. It's it's to live for his glory, not your glory. How does the love of the world entice and tempt you today? 
you're, if you're a believer, you need to be able to answer this question, I think. Is it a desire for pleasure? Is it a, a desire for things? Is it pride in your status? I, I put it this way because the world tempts all of us to this fatal attraction, but the world doesn't tempt us all in the same way. We Each of us, I think, have our, our characteristic weaknesses, our characteristic failings. If you're a Christian, you need to know what that weakness is so that you know how to battle it. And, and a great way to begin to try to diagnose where you are tempted to love the world in, instead of, of the Father is, is to answer the question, if I only had, fill in the blank, then I would be happy. If I just had what goes there, then I wouldn't be anxious anymore. Then I wouldn't be fearful anymore. Then I'd be content. Then I'd be happy. Or, or you could put it negatively. If I lost fill in the blank, I'd be devastated. I wouldn't know how to keep living. I don't know how I'd be happy again. Friends, what you put in that blank is what you love. Or what, at the very least, you're tempted to love. Because what we want as Christians to be able to put there very clearly is God. So long as I have God, I'm content. So long as I have God, no matter what else happens, I am happy. If I lost God, I would be destroyed. If anything else goes there, then you know, I think, where your weakness lies. How do we resist love for the world? How do we begin to battle against the other things that want to put themselves into that sentence where really only God should be? Well, I think it starts by, by where John starts right here. By seeing through the world's biggest lie, the lie of its own permanence. Have you ever noticed that we never see ads on television for nursing homes? We rarely see them for retirement centers. I don't know that I've ever seen an ad on television for a funeral home. Now, is it that these institutions don't advertise? No, they do, but they, but, but they do so quietly. Uh, and the reason that they can do so quietly, and I, I know this because my, my dad is in, this, is in the nursing home industry, is, um, you see, everything else that we buy, everything else that people are try, trying to sell us, you, you know, we, we have to be convinced that we really need this really need it. But, but things like nursing homes and funeral homes and retirement centers, they have their own sort of inevitability about them, right? They force themselves on us. I know this is not a comfortable thing to talk about, but, but this is the way the world works, right? And the world gets this. The, the world sells us all sorts of things 
under this lie that the world is all that there is. And so, of course, you have to have that car or that house or that lifestyle because this is all there is. But it's a lie. And the funeral home industry knows it. So they don't have to resort to that kind of advertising. You see, death is coming. Jesus is coming back. And therefore, one way or another, this world will pass away. So why give ourselves to a love that will not last when we can give ourselves to a love for God and in return know a love that will not end? As John says, the man who does the will of God lives forever. This is why I love singing songs like we sang earlier uh, this morning. It is not death to die. It's why we're going to end our service in just a few minutes by singing about heaven. Hark, I hear the harps eternal. It's it's actually kind of passe to sing about heaven these days in most Christian churches. And that's sad. Because as we remind ourselves of the truth of heaven, we're reminded that this world is passing away. And so we battle against our love for it. John warns us about this alternative loyalty, this alternative love that comes to us from outside, from the world. The world is passing away, he says. Do not love it. But then he turns and he looks at this this alternative uh, uh, lie of something that's going to last. But but this one actually arises not from the outside. It arises actually from within the church itself. Brings us to our second point. False teachers don't stay, so don't follow them. False teachers don't stay, so don't follow them. Look at, at verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. John said the world is passing away, and now he actually offers proof. He says it's the last hour. Now, he does not mean that literally. Uh, when, when he wrote it, he didn't think that, you know, 60 minutes were about to pass and then it's all over. Uh, this was a letter that he was writing, and it was going to travel over land, and it was going to take weeks at least, if not months, to get to his recipients. So we know he's using that language metaphorically. It's, it's very much like the language in the rest of the New Testament, the last days or the last times. What he means is that the beginning of the end has come. The new age has been inaugurated. The old age is passing away. As he said, the darkness is passing. The true light is already shining. It's, it's been inaugurated through the, the coming of the Messiah, the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Messiah. The kingdom has actually come. It's, it's begun. And, and, and now that the end is almost upon us, really all that awaits is Christ's return. That's what John means when he talks about it's, it's the last hour. And his proof is that antichrists have already appeared. Very human, 
very false teachers who oppose Christ and his message and who are, are like forerunners, as it were, of, of the Antichrist, the diabolical Antichrist who will appear not at the beginning of the end, but at the end of the end or near the end of the end. Now, at this moment, some of you are sitting on the edge of your seats hoping that I'm going to talk about the identity and the meaning of the Antichrist. And many others of you are hoping I don't go anywhere near there. Well, it would be interesting to talk about. But that's actually not what John talks about. He doesn't spend his time here talking about the Antichrist. That's not what he's so much interested in. He's interested in all these little Antichrists that are showing up. And they're showing up within the church itself. And that complicates things, doesn't it? Because if one group of teachers is teaching one thing, and another group of teachers is teaching something else entirely, who's to say which are the Antichrists and which are the servants of Christ? He's he's got a problem. And so he gives them the answer there in verse 19. They went out from us, and their leaving proves that they were never really part of us to begin with. Now, that John says us rather than you is significant. He's he's referring to their local church. When he says they they went out from us, he's talking about they've left, these false teachers have left those, those local churches of which these believers are a part of. But, but he says us in order to underscore the apostolic character of their community. These false teachers arose within that, that local church setting. But when they left that local church, they didn't just leave one local church to go start another local church. No, they left the teaching and the message that that local church and all other local churches are founded on. They left the apostolic proclamation of the word of life, which is where John started his letter back in the very first verses of chapter one. Now, John's going to make the content of the message, this apostolic message, clear in in just a couple of verses. But I want you to see the logic of what he's doing here. The way you recognize a false teacher, the way you recognize an antichrist, according to John, is their departure from the historic teaching and therefore the historic community of the apostles. It turns out you don't have to be Todd Miles, systematic theology professor at Western Seminary, to recognize false teaching. You don't have to be able to figure it all out. You don't have to figure out all the minute and particular ways in which teaching is wrong. You just have to be able to see that they've departed from the pattern that the apostles laid down. And therefore, they've departed from the apostolic fellowship itself. Remember, that's what we've been brought into. John made this clear back in chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that the apostles proclaim this message to bring us, those who've heard the message, into fellowship with them. That, that, that's what he says. We, chapter 1, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Why do we care about having fellowship with the apostles? Next verse or, or next sentence. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. To depart from the pattern of teaching of the apostles is to depart from the fellowship of the apostles. And to depart from the fellowship of the apostles is to depart from the Father and the Son. 
Now, we live in a cynical age. We don't trust authority, especially institutional authority. But the irony, of course, is that our cynicism has led us to be incredibly gullible and easily led astray. Because in place of apostolic authority, we've privileged the charismatic individual. We've privileged the celebrity. We've privileged the entertainer. We've privileged even the academic. We will happily listen to the guy who can draw the biggest crowd. The truth is, truth is not found by voting. It's revealed. It's revealed by God in Jesus Christ. And that truth revealed in Jesus Christ was vindicated by his resurrection. And Jesus himself told us that he would pass on that truth through inspiration of the apostles. Friends, we have an apostolic standard in the scriptures. To depart from it, to depart from the community of the faithful, is simply to reveal, according to John, It's simply to reveal that you were never part of us in the first place. Why is that? Because as John points out, those who have fellowship with the Son, that is the Holy One, have received an anointing. That's what he says there in verse 20, an anointing that teaches the truth. What is that anointing? It's the Holy Spirit himself. And what does the Spirit testify to? The Spirit testifies to the truth of the Word. Why does the Spirit always testify to the truth of the Word? Because it's His Word. He's the one that inspired it in the first place. Friends, this is why we privilege and prioritize expositional preaching here at Henson. Not because I personally take great pleasure in standing up and talking to you all for 45 minutes every week. It actually takes a lot of work. And I would much rather just kind of meet with you all individually throughout the week and do a lot of other things that pastors get to do in many ways. But but we understand that it is this word that is our standard. And so we're going to take time to, to teach it, to preach it, to proclaim it, to measure ourselves by it. It's why periodically we confess our faith together. Sometimes personally, as as you heard Jim do today, uh, sometimes corporately, using uh, maybe one of the historic confessions of faith that Christians have used, like the Apostles' Creed, or sometimes even using our own church's statement of faith. The early church fathers affirmed a a doctrine that, that is often misunderstood, but I think is extremely important here. That, that doctrine is extra ecclesium nulla salus. Extra ecclesium nulla salus. It translates, outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, when the church fathers said that, they, they weren't talking about an institutional, organized religion boundary. They're not saying outside of the Roman Catholic Church, or or outside some sort of institutional boundary, there's no salvation. No, they were talking about an apostolic boundary, because the church is precisely that institution that has been defined by the apostolic preaching of the cross. 
and no other group of people has been entrusted with that message. It is the church's message. It is that message, that apostolic message that is our standard, therefore. It is that message that the Spirit testifies to. It is that message that we have fellowship in. Why does this matter? Because there is no other message than the apostolic message of Jesus that can bring us into fellowship with God. That's why it matters. You simply cannot have God. You cannot have fellowship with God. You cannot have intimacy with God without the apostles' message about Jesus who brings us to God. This, I think, is, is, is why church membership is important. And, and in many ways, this is what he's talking about here. Are you staying inside the church or are you departing? Are you leaving the church? Church membership doesn't save anybody. Oh, I know churches have taught that in the past, and they're utterly wrong to do so. Church membership doesn't save anybody. But what does church membership do when it's practiced well, when it's meaningful? It gives us assurance. That's what it does. It assures us that we are part of the community of those who are conformed to the apostolic message. We're not just taking it on our own. We're not just saying, you know, trust me, just, you know, take my word for it, I'm a Christian. No, we're joining with a group of people who are self-consciously saying, we're going to live according to this message. We're going to conform ourselves to this message. We're going to help each other stay conformed to this message because this is the only message that brings us to God. All right. So if we're not to go with the world, and if we're not to go with the latest novel teachings, many of which arise within the church itself, what do we do? What we do is we stick with Jesus. That's my third point. Jesus is the Christ, so remain in him. Jesus is the Christ, so remain in him. Look at verse 21. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Here, John finally comes to that third test of the genuine, lasting Christian, the test of belief. John states that the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar. Now, that's strong language. We, we, don't, we don't tend to like to use that kind of language in polite company. You don't call people liars. What we need to remember here is that John is not talking about pagans. He's not talking about people that have never even heard of Jesus. He's talking about false teachers, people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to know God, and who are trying to lead these Christians astray. For John, this denial that Jesus is the Messiah really, really is the, the definition of Antichrist. And, and we need to, to note that it's not just a denial that Jesus is the, the Messiah, which is what Christ means. 
It's a denial that Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate in the flesh. You see how he moves there in verse uh, 22 and, and verse 23. In, in, verse 20, uh, in, in verse 22, he says, such a man, the man who says that, that denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. He moves from the language of Messiah to the language of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We, we, we can't be sure precisely what the positive false teaching was that these guys were doing. John, no, nowhere or, or practically nowhere gives us you know, their, their positive agenda. But what, what we can tell is that these antichrists, these false teachers were denying that the man Jesus, the human man, Jesus of Nazareth, was at the same time the incarnate Son of God, come in the flesh as Messiah to rescue God's people from their sins. This is what was being denied. And so it's no wonder that John insists that this denial meant denying the Father as well. While verse 23, acknowledging the Son, literally confessing the Son, meant having the Father as well. Dear friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel itself at stake. Because of our sin, we are cut off from the Father. God is holy and we are not. But the gospel declares that the Father actually took the initiative to restore our fellowship with him, and he did it by sending the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on our flesh, to bear our guilt, to, to pay our debt for us. And he did it on the cross. You, you understand that if the Son were not incarnate as a human being, then he couldn't represent us. He couldn't stand in our place. His, his death on the cross would have been meaningless because he wouldn't have been representing us. But if Jesus is not also God. Well, then there was no way that he could satisfy the debt we owe to God because the debt we owe is infinite. The debt we owe is a debt that only God himself could satisfy. Friends, theology is not esoteric. It's not something that just brainiacs are interested in. It is deeply, deeply practical because there is no such thing as salvation by grace unless God is Trinity because it will take God himself to satisfy the debt that we owe. And there is no such thing as salvation by grace unless the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ because we needed a human being to stand in our place to truly represent us. Oh, you might come up with some other system of salvation if, if God is not Trinity, if Jesus is not fully God and fully man. But rest assured, it will not be a salvation by grace that fully satisfies the justice of God and fully extends to us the love of God. Now, for that, we need this God. 
Christianity, you see, makes an exclusive claim. You can only know the Father through the Son. But it's not because we're elitist. It's because this is the way God has revealed himself, the three-in-one triune God. If God had revealed himself only as Father, the way, the way uh, Islam claims uh, that, that he has, well, then we would be guilty of the greatest idolatry to introduce the Son, which, of course, is what Islam claims of Christianity. But friends, this isn't our idea. It's, it's right there. It's right there in the verses that I just read to you. It's who God is. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, this is the God we invite you to. This is the God who, who actually says to you, come to me. Come to me because I have done everything for you. I have taken on your flesh. I have taken on your guilt and I have paid it. And so come, repent of your sins and put your trust in me. Know the lavish love that I have for you. If you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand. This is what we'd love to talk to you about more. I'm going to be at the door afterwards. And if you think this describes you, please come talk to me. Uh, I'm not going to try to pressure you into doing anything, but I would love to talk to you more about what it would mean for you to be in a relationship with this God and no other. Now, for, for those of us that are Christians, this, of course, is why it's so important for us to remain in Christ, because Christ is our salvation. And John, in the, in the final verses of our section, provides two means for us to remain in Christ. First, through the Word. We see that in verses 24 and 25. Through the, through the Word, this, this message that we've heard, it's a message with a promise that all who put their faith in Christ are united to Christ and benefit fully from his death and his resurrection, which means that to receive Christ by faith through this message that we've heard is to have eternal life. Because in having Christ, that's what we have. We have all that is his. Now, how do we make sure then that, that the message remains in us, as John says there uh, in, in verse 24? We want to make sure that the message remains in us. Well, there's, there's nothing like magical about this. There's nothing terribly fancy. We need to we need to practice the disciplines of grace, the means of grace. You need to do what you're doing right now. You need to attend the preaching of God's word. I'd encourage you to join a small group. I'd encourage you to come uh, first hour, come to one of the adult Sunday school classes. If you, if you don't, uh, start every morning the way, the way Jim Everton told us about his dad starting his morning. Every morning, spend some time in the word in a time of personal devotion, a, a quiet time. I kind of don't care what you call it just that we're in the word and in prayer every single morning. But the point of all of these disciplines and these means is not just activities to, to check off a list. No, we want that message to seep deep into us. We want it to transform us. We want it to become the narrative that gives shape and meaning to our lives. And the way that happens is as we know the word and then we lean on it. You know, we test it. We put it to work in obedience and in love. And, and, and when things come along that challenge us, instead of listening to that tape that's always going on in your head, you know, that, that tape that says that, that you're a failure, or that tape that says that you're not loved, or that tape that says you've got to work harder for God to love you, no, we take that tape out. I really got to change this illustration because most of you don't know what tapes are. <laughs> okay, you, you eject that CD or, or you, or I don't know, you put it on shuffle or something, and and we need a different message playing, right? We need a different message playing, the message of the gospel. 
I mean, these days we, we, we talk about people walking around with, with their earbuds in all the time, and they've got their own personalized soundtrack to life. This is, this is the experience of young people. They're, they're walking around with their own customized soundtrack. Friends, we need a different soundtrack to our lives. And that soundtrack is the gospel. That soundtrack is the word, this message that we've heard as we've seeped in it, as we've meditated on it, so that it is always playing in the background. But we don't just need the word. Second, we remain in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's that's what John's talking about there in verses 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit is the anointing that we've received. Like the gospel message itself, we received the Spirit at our conversion. Indeed, it was the Spirit that gave us eyes to see, that gave us ears to hear, that allowed us to believe the message that we heard and so find new life in Christ. Now, John points out in these verses that that same Spirit remains at work in us today. It's not just that the Spirit causes us to be born again and then goes away. No, no, the Spirit remains at work in us, teaching us about all things, John says. Now, when he says teaches about all things, it doesn't mean he's teaching you differential equations. It doesn't mean that he's teaching you physics. He's, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about salvation. So we've got to read it in context. The Spirit teaches us all things that we need to know about Christ and the salvation that he has brought. When John says we don't need a teacher because we have the Spirit, he doesn't mean that, that we don't need instruction or people that do that instruction. After all, what is he doing, Right? I mean, he's writing a letter that, that's instructing them. Now, he's actually referring back to the promise of Jeremiah 31 that we read together earlier, that, that in the new covenant, God pours out his spirit so that all who are in the covenant know God by his spirit. How does the spirit teach us? Friends, he teaches us through his word. He teaches us as he commends his word to us. He teaches us as he creates in us a desire to know his word. He teaches us in the midst of all the variety of our situations, day in and day out, all the, all the particularities of our lives, as he takes the word, the objective revelation that we know, and begins to apply it to the specificity of our lives. You know, we're constantly asking, I think, the question, you know, I, I, we want to be led by the Spirit, and, 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 and we're, we're asking questions of guidance. But what we need to understand is that according to the New Testament, the main thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit leads us to Christ and keeps us in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that the Spirit won't give you help as you're trying to make a difficult decision. Do I marry this girl or that girl? Do I take this job? Do I move to that place? Uh, of course, we want to be listening for and responsive to the Spirit's leading there, but the main leading that the Spirit does is he leads us to Christ. These false teachers were trying to lead them astray, lead them away from Christ. The Spirit leads us to Christ. Leads us to Christ in love. Leads us to Christ in obedience. The subjective work of the Spirit combines with the objective revelation of the word that he himself inspired to keep us in the Savior. Friends, praise God that even as we are exhorted to remain in Christ, it is the work of the Spirit to cause us to remain. So are you open to the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's teaching as he leads you to Christ? 
as you, as you read the word and as you sense the Spirit's guidance, do you find yourself submitting to the Spirit? Are you developing that habit of keeping in step with the Spirit as he leads you to conformity to Christ? Friend, do not think you can honor the word with lots of correct theology without also honoring the Spirit who leads us into obedience and faith. And do not think you can honor the Spirit by claiming a divine source for every impulse you have without also honoring the Word, which is the Spirit's revelation of God for our lives. Spirit and Word always work together. Friends, here's lasting quality. The true Christian is the one who remains in Christ through the apostolic message that they heard and by the power of the Spirit. Which means that the grand mark of the Christian, you think about these these three marks that we've been talking about, these three tests, the grand mark over all of them is perseverance, remaining, staying until the very end. This isn't perseverance to a dead and boring tradition. It is perseverance unto eternal life. The world's passing away. False teachers are leading astray. But as John says, the man who does the will of God by the Spirit of God lives forever. And what is the will of God? Except to believe in his Son. That's what Jesus said. The life that you long for life that will really last is found in Christ. Believe in him. Remain in him. And that life, life that will never end, begins today. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that that these profound truths that we've thought about this morning, which are, which are difficult to grasp, we pray that your spirit would apply them to our lives. Father, we pray that, that your spirit would cause us indeed to remain in Christ. Father, we pray that we would not be deceived by all the false alternatives that will only disappoint us in the end. We ask that you would keep our eyes on heaven. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.